Speaking of spring, several years ago, uh, we recognized, I recognized, that we weren't going to be able to go anywhere for spring break uh, because of a lot of calendaring and scheduling activities. So I decided instead of not allowing the kids to do anything, I was going to take some uh, drivable staycations, some, some things that were close by that we could go and enjoy and just go spend the day. We were new to North Carolina, and we thought it'd be fun to kind of get around. And the first thing that popped into my head, which probably would pop into your head, is why not go visit some of the revolutionary battlefields close by? Amen? I mean, who? what teenager doesn't want to go visit revolutionary battlefields and uh, for spring break? And so we decided to go down to South Carolina and visit some of the revolutionary battlefields. And so we drove down. I mean, I promised that we'd stop on the way back in Shelby and eat Red Bridges barbecue. So that was enough to get them down there. Uh, so that convinced them. We drove down, stopped at Kings Mountain first. If you've ever been to Kings Mountain, it is a mountain and the battlefield takes place at the top of the mountain. Uh, so we walked up the battlefield, both of my kids and I, and uh, I'd read several books and knew the lay of the land, so I was sharing with them how the battle breaks down, and uh, they were bored to tears and hoping that we could hurry up and go somewhere else, and uh, that was only the first stop. And so we went from there over to Calpins and the Calpins Battlefield. Now, Calpins Battlefield, what a lot of people don't realize outside of Calpins, South Carolina, uh, was probably what many historians would say one of the pivotal turning points of the Revolutionary War. You see, you probably don't realize when you talk about Valley Forge and you talk about all the other battles that took place in the Revolutionary War, probably the, the turning point to allowing the colonials, allowing us to win the war, took place just a couple hours south of here. You see, in the south, the, the battles had all shifted from the north to the south, and uh, Cornwallis had holed up in Charleston, and he was hoping to move from the south where they had a big support of Tory supporters that supported the crown to move north and take on Washington. And after he cleared out the south, but there was a small pocket of resistance over in Western Carolina uh, under the leadership of a man by the name of Daniel Morgan. And so Calpins became a pivotal point to where Cornwallis's troops and the colonials that were left came to battle. Now my kids were a little more excited about this because in the movie The Patriot, uh, the battle that takes place in the very last scene is kind of a combination of Guilford Courthouse and, and Calpin. So they kind of knew how the battle was going to take place. And so we laid it out, and it's amazing to me, I've been to battlefields all over the, the country, how small the battlefield actually was. It's probably twice the size of this room, not real big, uh, but it wasn't a whole lot of men. There was about 1,600 British regulars and about 1,200 uh, American colonials that fought in that battle. Now, the British were under the guy by the name of Bannister Tarleton, and uh, Tarleton was the bad guy in the movie The Patriot. So my kids could kind of get into that, kind of picture what was going on here. Uh, and they had hoped with probably Cornwallis's greatest troops to come in and take care of these mountain people because, you see, the crowd that was in the colonial troops was about half regulars and about half militia. And the militia were mostly local people from North Carolina, Tennessee, South Carolina, and they didn't have the greatest reputation. But Daniel Morgan decided to plan the battlefield according to the reputation they had. And he lured Carlton into this small battlefield there near Calpins, uh, based on a background of two hills, and he decided to set up three lines to lure Tarleton in. And in the first line of defense, he put his best shots, his skirmishers, and they, they, their job was to get one shot off. And that one shot, hopefully to take out an officer, take out somebody in the lead. And then in the second line, they placed the militia. That was the local people, and their reputation was to run. Uh, when you've got British regulars that are coming at you with bayonets and charging, and they're coming in your face, these guys that hadn't been trained 
they usually ran, and that was their reputation. And so Morgan knew that Tarleton would see what was going on when they ran. And so he asked these militias, these 800 guys, he said, all I'm asking is that you're willing to shoot twice before you run. He said, I know you're going to run. Shoot twice before you run. Now, that's a big deal because in, to load those guns takes a lot of time. But they agreed to do it. And then on the rise of a hill, on the other side of the hill, he stationed all of the regulars, another 750 American colonial soldiers waiting to see what Tarleton would do. Well, Tarleton took the bait. He brought his men in, charged. They lined up, just like you remember seeing in your history books, and began to march down the field. And as they came, the skirmishers took out a lot of the leadership, took out a lot of the front lines, and the skirmishers moved back to the second line. Well, then as they kept marching, the, the militia made their first shot. They reloaded. Armies coming at them, they tried their best and made their second shot. When they made their second shot, they took off to go back over the hill. Where Tarleton is in the back of the British army, he sees this, he sees them retreating, and he sends the full force of his army to pursue. He figures this is going to be it. We're going to wipe out the colonials. And they pursue up to the top of this hill and begin to go over the rise. And when they do, they recognize that they are going right into the teeth of the best colonial soldiers. And they're wiped out. Eventually, the colonials fanned out and surrounded the British soldiers in kind of a vice move and left 90% of the British soldiers wounded or killed with over 700 captured. It was an incredible victory. These American heroes saved the colonial independence war by retreating. It was a great, great tactic, great plan. The greatest victory in the South was achieved through what you would never imagine, running away. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that that's a great lesson for some of us. It's a great lesson for what happens when we face temptation, when we face things that are greater than what we can handle. Some of the greatest spiritual victories you will ever achieve can come by running away. And Joseph is going to show us exactly that. So if you have a Bible, I want you to turn Genesis chapter 39. Uh, when we last saw Joseph, Joseph had been sold into slavery uh, by his brothers. His brothers had thrown him in a well and sold him to some Ishmaelites that were traveling to Egypt. And then they took Joseph at the end of last week. We learned they took Joseph and sold him to Egypt, in Egypt, to a man by the name or the title of Potiphar. Now, Potiphar's not his name, really. It's his title. It means uh, Pharaoh's man or the man of Pharaoh. Some people believe that he was high up in the Egyptian army. But, but this is who he gets sold into. So he's been sold into slavery, abandoned. He's in a different country, and he's sold into this house. And that's where we pick up in verse 2 of chapter 39. It said, The Lord was with Joseph. And he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the master's eyes and became his attendant. And then Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted him to take care of everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of Potiphar. Now this is a... Uh, it's an incredible picture because it's a worst-case scenario. He's in slavery, but he's prospering in slavery. He is being blessed. God is still with him. We learn from verse 2. We're going to see it another five times in this passage. God is blessing him in the midst of his struggle. He's blessing those that are around him. So the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in his field, so that he left Joseph's care of everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself about anything except for the food he ate. Now, we don't know a couple of things from this pattern. We don't know how long this takes place. 
from the time he sold into slavery to the time that this story comes to fruition in a moment. We don't know, maybe a year, maybe two years, but we do know that he has risen in prominence to become second in command of this man's household. And a household in Pharaoh's uh, upper echelons was a large household. He had crops, he had farms, he had people working those things, he had people working the household. So he is second in command to this man. And we also don't know what kind of cultural shifts that he had to face. You can imagine he is coming from a nomadic tribe, Hebrew tribe that worships God and God alone, and he is thrown into a culture that is, uh, is very different from what he is. It's a multi-God worshiping culture, a culture that's based on self, based on what want, the self wants, based on whatever uh, you feel like doing, doing, and that's the culture that he's embraced in. But what we do know, just from reading this little passage, is that Joseph still trusts God. In the midst of all of this, Joseph trusts him, and Joseph trusts that God has a plan. And Joseph also knew that for God's plan to come a reality in his life, he had to be faithful to God. We know that because we can see that God is blessing him. And we learned last week that no matter what circumstances you're in, no matter what you're facing, no matter how difficult life is coming at you, as long as you can place your trust and faith in God and recognize that God has a plan for you, He's not done, then you can overcome any circumstance. You can overcome anything that comes against you. And here's Joseph away from his family, young, 17 when he sold into slavery, maybe 18 here, 19 here, and he is facing all of these difficulties, but yet he is trusting that God is in control. He's trusting that God hasn't disappointed, that God hasn't left him. Now, now as I mentioned when I was reading Scripture earlier, one of the greatest barriers to us achieving the dreams that God has for us is sin. You see, sin uh, is something that always, will destroy your dreams. We cannot, you cannot live in a place of unrepented sin or a lifestyle of sin and expect God to bless you. You can't say that God's will is ever for you to have sin in your life. People come to me and, and they, they uh, want some counseling or want some advice and, and, and they somehow justify the sin that they're living in by, by rationalizing that we love each other or it's God's plan. Listen, God's plan is never for you to live in sin. And what I said earlier from Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians is we need to understand sin will always put hurdles in your dream path. And if you're in that place, you can't pursue what God is calling you to. Now, one thing as we get into the story is I don't want you to confuse temptation with sin because they're two different things. All of us are tempted. Every one of us in this room is tempted. Some of you have been tempted today. You were tempted yesterday. Jesus was tempted when he went out into the wilderness for 40 days. All of us are going to face temptation. Sin comes along when we give in to that temptation. Sin comes along when we out on the temptation that we're facing. Now, when you say temptation, a lot of people think, well, we're just talking about sexual temptation. But really, there's three main areas of temptation that all of us face. And Joseph really faced them in the passage we read. The first is a material temptation. That's a lust for things. It's a lust to have things that aren't yours. A lust to... To, to have things that you think will somehow make your life better. Somehow you place your faith and your hope in things and you lust after those things and so you pursue after them. You see it with your eyes and your mind tells you that it'll make you happy. So you go after it. It's a material temptation. A second temptation is a personal temptation. It's a lust for status. 
See, it's this idea that somehow if you can ever gain title, if you can ever be popular, if ever you can ever be well-known, then somehow your life will be so much better. And so people that pursue this, that have a desire in their heart for those things, they will step on other people, they will walk and they will hurt other people to achieve status, to achieve power. And then the third temptation is sexual temptation, and that's the lust for someone else. And it's the lust for someone else that would cause you to act in a way that is not biblical or it's not permissible. And lust will always lead you down a path that can lead to destruction, whether it's for material goods, personal goods, or for someone else. And that's the type of temptation that Joseph's about to face. You see, Joseph is about to come face to face with the mother of all cougars. I mean, this is the mother uh, of all uh, sexual predators. If, if you wanted to look it up in Wikipedia, there'd be a picture of Potiphar's wife. This is the first instance that we have of, of facing that. And the only way that Joseph is able to face Potiphar's wife is because he recognized that God was still in control and he recognized the temptation he was facing. And so as we read through this, I'm going to try to give us some lessons we can learn. And, and they're real simple. They're not rocket science. They're real easy. But they're things that we forget when we're facing temptation. They're things that we forget when we're facing struggles. And so these are going to be real uh, easy life lessons that we can get from Joseph and what he has to say. So let me keep reading. Verse 6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Now young, muscular, uh, well-built. If you, if you remember back to your flannel boards from vacation Bible school in Egypt, they didn't wear a lot of shirts when they worked. Okay, so Joseph is built. He's probably got a six-pack. He's, he, he's been out working and uh, he's muscular. And, and I mean, they go out of their way to say, this is a good-looking young guy good-looking young guy, and he's living in this house. And after a while, the master's wife took notice of Joseph. Now, the King James said she made eyes. This means she was staring at him up and down, letting him know, I'm interested. After a while, he's working. She's sitting on the couch, or she's sitting on the lounge, and she's watching him, and she's looking up and down. And then it goes even further. And finally, she says, why don't you come to bed with me? I told you she was a straightforward cougar. She just looks at him and says, listen, young guy, this is my time with you. Why don't you come to bed with me? Now, the first lesson that I want to give you, the first thing that I think is important for us to understand is temptation almost always comes when you least expect it. See, temptation doesn't come when you're ready for it because it, it wouldn't be hard for us to defeat. It always comes when you're not looking for it. Here's Joseph, all that he's gone through, and all of a sudden things are going great. I mean, he is being blessed, and, and he is, is in second in charge of this wonderful house, and, and things are going great, and then all of a sudden this temptation comes and sneaks up on him. It comes because that's a prime time for you to be susceptible to it. Usually after a great victory, when things are going great, after emotional victory, after a spiritual victory, those are the times you're vulnerable. Think about David. David, when he was tempted by Bathsheba, was 50 years old. His kingdom was the largest in the east. His kingdom was facing peace for the first time ever. It was united. Everything was good. Had a wife and kids and everything is perfect. And that's when temptation comes and sinks up on us. The best thing that you can do is be aware of times that you are vulnerable. And you can't be weakened by your situation. Recognize that there are circumstances that you place yourself in when you are more open to being tempted, more open to giving in to things. You see, Joseph, he was in charge of the house. Nobody was over him. Nobody's watching. What an incredible, dangerous situation for him to be tempted to do something that he knew would kill his dreams. 
Everything's going great. He, he, had, he could have rationalized it all out. But you see, Joseph had determined in his heart that he wasn't going to allow temptation or sin to sidetrack him. You see, he had made a commitment beforehand. And, and let me just say this. For you and I, we have got to stand and learn and cultivate our convictions and our commitments long before we're ever tempted. If you wait until you are tempted to decide whether or not that is right or wrong, you're always going to fail. You always, see, it's much better to decide when you're at home praying whether or not something is wrong or not, what your convictions are on that, than when you're faced with a, a, a cash register of money and no one's around. It's much easier for you to determine your convictions and what is right and wrong than to make that decision in the backseat of a car out on some overlook. Because you see, if you wait until you are thrown into those circumstances and you are thrown into that situation, you are always going to fail. And temptation comes when you least expect it. It comes when you're looking the other way. Joseph stood for his convictions because he knew that if he were to act, it would blow his dreams. See, we need to have the reasons in our mind in advance what we are willing to do and what we're not willing to do. And we need to be willing to stand up for those because if we wait too long, we'll fail. See, the Bible says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And let me tell you something. I don't care how strong you think you are. If you wait until the moment of temptation to decide whether or not you're going to give in, you will give in. Second thing we learn from Joseph is that temptation always tries to make sin look acceptable. It doesn't call it sin. It calls it everything else. I mean, Potiphar's wife, uh, she could have called it uh, an alternative lifestyle. Probably in Egypt, it was okay for the men and women to sleep with their servants. So she didn't see anything wrong with it. Because you see, sin never shows you the consequences. It always minimizes it. Sin always tries to appeal to your flesh. Temptation and sin will always try to get you to focus on right now, today, instead of looking at what happens tomorrow. Because temptation knows that if it can take your eyes and your mind off of what happens tomorrow, then you're willing to give in for today. You're willing to make mistakes. Joseph called it for what it was. He didn't mess around. He didn't say this is just to rationalize out. This is just the way things are now. This is just the way life is. Joseph said this is against God. Matter of fact, down to verse 9, he says, this is wicked. And I told you earlier, you see, my worry is that we don't recognize today the destructive power of sin. We don't recognize today how much sin can destroy you from the inside and out. We don't recognize what God says about sin. That the Bible says that God hates sin. And God hates sin in our life, and sin destroys us, not because he hates us, not because he doesn't want you to have fun, because see, sin always accentuates the fun. Listen, it's going to be fun, and let me just share with you, sin is fun for a short time, but there's always consequences. Kind of like going to a buffet. Buffets are wonderful, right? Man, like a hog to a trough. You just get your plate, get you another plate, just keep going down. But there's consequences to it, right? And when you're eating, you don't think, man, I wonder how this is going to affect me two hours from now, right? You just eat, and that's the way sin is. But there's always consequences. There's always a price to pay. You see, not only do you need to be ready for sin, you need to call it for what it is. It's not just an alternative life. It's not just the way things are. It's not love. It's not emotion. It is sin, and it will destroy you. Don't be deceived by persuasion. 
See, what I found is sin loves company. Sin doesn't like to be on its own, so sin will surround us. You don't think Joseph was being persuaded? I bet she didn't have anything on, probably very little to the imagination. She looks at him. He's standing there without a shirt. No one's around. She says, listen, come to bed with me. I'm sure there were more words there. Nobody will know. It's just between you and I. No big deal. Here in Egypt, everybody is doing it. You see, don't be persuaded by other people trying to tell you what you know to be wrong is right. Because if you know it in your heart that it's wrong, you need to stand on your conviction. I've always found that, you know, your friends will surround you and tell you that it's okay. Usually the reason they'll tell you it's okay is because they're trying to justify why they did it. And, and sin that likes company, and so they want you to fail for the same things that they failed for. What, what I find sad is that almost in every situation where someone is given into temptation because they were convinced by other people, those people are never around to pick up the pieces of someone's broken dream when it all crashes. See, they're all there at the party. They're all there when everything's fun. They're all there when everything is going great. But when the consequences come home, those people are gone. Don't give in to your circumstances. Don't let it get called something beyond what it is. It is sin and destructive. Be ready for the temptation. Don't be caught off guard. Be ready to call it what it is, to name it, not to question it, to name it. And then the third lesson we learn, the best way to avoid temptation is to avoid it. That's not rocket science, is it? The best way to beat it, the best way to say no is to get away from it. In verse 10, it said, after a while, Joseph couldn't even be around her. After a while, he said, listen, I'm not even going to be in the same room with you. You see, if you have a problem and you want to avoid sin, then stay away from the people, places, and things that lead you to sin. It's amazing to me that we, we think we can play with fire and not get burned. We think that somehow we can dance around sin and have it never touch us, never affect us, never get its hands on us. If you have a language problem, stay away from people who have bad language. If you have a problem with gossip, stay away from the town gossip. Here, that's the post office. Stay away. Don't go near it. If you have a problem with pornography, don't find yourself home alone on the computer. Turn it off. Make a commitment. Put, put a blocker on there that you don't know the password to. See, it's not hard. But what we try to do is the flesh tries to tell you you're strong enough. Listen, that is a lie from Satan. There is not one person in here strong enough. It took everything that Jesus Christ had to say no to sin. And you aren't half the strength that he has. I remember an old preacher, a young preacher came to him and wanted some advice on struggling with lust. He said, listen, is there ever an age that you get to that you stop struggling with the temptation of lust? An old preacher thought for a minute and he looked at, and looked at him and said, yeah, I think there is. I think it's about three weeks after your funeral. Because you're not strong enough. See, flesh tells us that we can dance around with it, that we can be gentle with it. No, you need to call it what it is. Don't play with your emotions. Stand strong and don't crack the door. You see, if we crack the door, we can't get mad when sin comes busting in. We like to see there's some kind of emotional high that we get from getting close to sin without actually giving it. We flirt. We play around. We, we work it over in our mind what's going on. What would happen if this happened? We work out these scenarios. 
Try to see how close we can get to the line with actually crossing the line. Well, let me just give you a hint. If you can see the line, you're in trouble. Because the Christian's life is not about how close can I get to sin without giving in. It used to be the number one question I'd get asked when I'd go do conferences and, and, and do uh, uh, different youth activities and college activities, and I'd have a question and answer. They'd, inevitably, somebody would ask, how far is too far? Wrong question. Matter of fact, Paul said in that 1 Corinthians 10, flee sexual immorality. That means any sexual behavior that causes your mind to take your focus off of God. If you can't do it with your parents in a room, you need to flee. It's that simple. See, it's not about how close you can come to the line. It's about how close you can come to Jesus. And if you're chasing Jesus, you don't care about the line. See, we need to call it what it is. We need to not be gentle with it. We need to avoid places and circumstances and people that will lead us into it. We need to be ready for it. And then look what happens. Verse 11. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. That's danger, Will Robinson, right there. Nobody was in there. It's trouble, okay? Nobody's in the house. That's trouble. And uh, then she's there. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. And the emphatic there is come to bed right now. And the insinuation, insinuation is that she's not wearing any clothes. He comes in. She catches him off guard. She grabs his cloak, which is probably what he's wearing around his waist. Probably all that he has on. And she says, come on, we're going to bed. And Joseph does the only thing that probably any of us could do to get out of that situation without giving in. He had a prayer meeting, right? That's what we do, right? Let me pray. God, is this okay? God, is this something I should know? Look what it says he did. She grabbed onto his cloak and he ran out of the house. He didn't wait to talk. He didn't try to talk. Or, he didn't say, listen, you know, this is probably not the right time. It's probably not the right moment. He ran because sometimes the only choice that you have when faced with temptation is to run from it. You've been avoiding it. You, you've been calling it what it is. And you are confronted with it head on. And you know in your heart you will not be able to resist anymore. The best thing for you to do is retreat. And as I told you, sometimes the greatest victory are in us retreating from the things against God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will always provide a way out. There is always a way out. You can't say, I couldn't help it. The devil made me do it. There was nothing I could do. No, there is always a way out. Most of the temptation we fail to, almost all of the temptation you and I struggle with, is things that we have allowed, invited, or encouraged into our life. Listen, don't be confused by immediate result. This is the way the devil tricks us. We think that if we say no one time, and we have victory, then we're good to go. But temptation doesn't give up. It will come back. And usually it comes back looking a different way with a different face. And, and sometimes when we have the greatest victories, as I said, point number one, greatest spiritual victories, because we've said no in this area of temptation, Temptation comes at us from another area. And we're weak because we were looking this way and he comes at us this way. Just because you say no one time doesn't mean it's over. You've got to stand on those principles. You've got to place them in your heart. And listen to me. 
There will come a time if you flee and you avoid it and you run that that temptation will no longer be a struggle for you because the flesh will give in to the Spirit. And you see, once the Spirit has gotten victory over the flesh and victory over the flesh, the Spirit is in control. And so that temptation, you may see it and it may come around. Now, don't get thinking, well, I'm, I'm strong enough. No, you're still weak. If you put yourself in the wrong place, but by the grace of God, there go you. But there does come a time where you stood up to a temptation over and over and over again to where the Spirit can defeat the flesh, and you can walk away from that. But for most of us, we need to be ready to run if we can't handle it. Call it what it is. Be ready for it. Avoid it if you can, and if you can't, flee from it. And then there's the last thing. Look what happens to Joseph. He's run out of the house. He's probably naked, running out. Who knows when he stops? He goes as far as he can to get away from everything that's in that house. When she saw that he'd left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her servants. Look, she said, the Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. He's, he's accused sexual assault he does the right thing and here he is being and let me just sidebar this this is where we get to those people usually the people that are tempting us and causing us to sin are the first ones to point fingers at us and say it was our fault in the first place turns around says he's the one who did it she kept his cloak beside her until a master came home potiphar comes home and when she told him the story that Hebrew slave that you brought to us came and made sport of me. And as soon as I screamed for help, he left the cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when the master heard the story that his wife was telling him, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. This is the last lesson and probably the most important for some of us here today. Sometime, probably a lot of time. Being victorious over temptation will not make you popular. A lot of times being able to say no to the temptation you struggle is not going to bring immediate victory. See, how many of you in this room, and, and I'm just asking, how many of you in this room have done the right thing, been at the right place, lived the right life, done the right things, and you find yourself saying, but God, Right? God, I didn't do those things like all the other girlfriends I had in high school and college. I, I stayed out of that stuff and I stay, and here I am. I don't even have a boyfriend. And God, what is going on in my life? And God, how could you let this happen to me? God, I didn't go to all those parties and I didn't pledge that group and I didn't do those things. And, 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 and so I stayed home and I was alone on the weekends a lot of times and everybody thought I was a nerd or made fun of me in high school. God, this is lonely. You see, sometimes we expect in our minds that when we do the right thing, the angels in heaven are going to start rejoicing and God's voice is going to come down and say, well done. Sometimes it happens. Most of the time it doesn't. Why? Because God's got a bigger picture than you do. See, we look at this story and say, he's in prison. Poor Joseph. No, God said, Joseph, you're probably not going to be able to stay away from that woman too much longer. And if you do give in, it's going to ruin the dreams I have for you. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take you and place you where you can be alone. And I'm going to work some more on your heart and prepare you for what's coming. See, sometimes the place that you're complaining about 
That is the exact place that God wants you. It may not have turned out how you wanted, but it always turns out how God wants it. Because you see, every time you run away from temptation, you are running towards God. And the closer you get to God, the more you find yourself in His will, His plan, and His dream. Listen, God is not done just because you find yourself abandoned in prison. Just because you did the right thing and it all didn't turn out immediately like you wanted doesn't mean the story's over. Don't allow doing the right thing to overwhelm you with struggles. See, prison wasn't a period in Joseph's story. It was a comma. He had much more to come. And the most beautiful thing about it, if you look in the story, in verse 20 it says, While Joseph was in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and favor in the eyes of the prisoners. You see, Joseph recognized that it was much better to be in God's favor in prison than to be in man's favor and sin. That's what you have to reconcile in your heart. See, we need to understand, every one of us in this room is tempted. Every one of us. You look around, the person beside you has been tempted. Sometimes the same way you, sometimes other ways. But we all struggle with it every day. But what Joseph wants us to know, what the Word of God wants us to know, is you have a choice. You see, the world may tell you, you can't help it. You see, that's, that's the big rationalization today. College kids just can't help it. Teenagers, they just can't help it. They just can't say no. Wrong. The Word of God says you have a choice. And you can say no. You can refuse. You can walk away. And sometimes you have to run. Sometimes the greatest victories that you'll ever experience start by retreating. See, probably this morning, there's some of you that are dealing with the consequences. In a room this size, there's probably quite a few that have given in to temptation. And you failed. You blew it. And the reaction when that happens is for us to say, what's it matter? I've already blown it. I've already made the mistake. Devil whispers in your ear, just going. Can't get any worse. You're already over there. That's wrong. That's a lie. See, because just because you fail doesn't mean your dreams are over. You see, sin may put a hurdle on your path, but it doesn't end your dream because God is still in control. And this morning, if you failed, if, if you've given in, if you've crossed over and, and fallen into temptation and you're struggling with it, you need to understand there is a path back to your dreams, and it starts by repenting. Confessing your sins, saying, God, I know it's wrong. And placing your trust in God. And, and as you place your trust in God, begin to place your trust in His plan. The Bible says if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now you may still have to deal with the consequences, and some of them are big and some of them are little. They're like hurdles on your path. But you still have a path. It's time for you to get up off the track and get back in the race. The devil lies to so many beaten up Christians by telling them you're not any good anymore and you can't run anymore and your dreams are over. Listen, as long as you have breath and trust God, your dreams are alive. You may be in a lonely place, you may be in a difficult place, but the choice is yours. See, the most beautiful thing about it is for those of us that have failed in the past, we're not alone. Because every one of us at some point has given in. 
Every one of us at some point has failed. We're all jumping hurdles of our own making. But that's what church is all about. About us coming together and picking each other up off the track and cheering each other on. And when you see friends of yours that have faced bigger hurdles than you faced, it's being there ready to help pick them up when they fail or to warn them of the dangers ahead. See, the consequences are still there. Paul tells us the sexual sin consequences are, are deep and last a long time. But we are called as the body to nurture, to heal, and to help. Sin can sabotage your dreams, but as long as you have faith in God, it can't stop it. 